So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation, so you're most likely not just listening to Conspirituality. And that's totally okay. I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top-shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. So don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes to scientists, political activists, mobsters, even hostage negotiators. And Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-before-heard stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you more informed, a critical thinker, and to better operate in today's world. I was on his show. In preparation, I listened to a bunch of episodes. He's just really good at what he does. Like episode 880 features Ian Bremmer, you know, the top-notch political scientist. And the topic is dealing with the world in disarray. But then you have episodes like his skeptical Sunday format. Episode 882 looked at homeopathy. But he has other episodes on Ayurveda and also the popular pseudoscience of analyzing body language. There isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or a psycho family situation to relationships and networking and even to asking for a raise. So point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, he's easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and even actionable advice that you can directly use to improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Spending way too much time on social media? Derek here from Conspirituality, and you might be able to break the cycle of doom scrolling on Elon Musk's haunted Twitter by tuning into the Crooked Media podcast, 
Offline with John Favreau. I have been a Crooked Media fan since the company was founded, and I'm really excited to be talking about Offline because it's a different kind of Sunday show. It's a chance to step outside our social media-fueled news cycles and hear smarter, lighter conversations about how chronically online existence shapes the way that we live, work, and interact with the world around us. Each week, John Favreau is joined by notable guests like Stephen Colbert, Hassan Piker, ContraPoints, Margaret Atwood, what? All for intimate conversations about how to live happier, healthier lives, both on and offline. New episodes of Offline with John Favreau drop every Sunday wherever you get your podcasts. Spirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. You can stay up to date with us on all of our social media channels, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Clubhouse, where every Sunday I host a Clubhouse that is always wonderful because I get to talk to so many listeners and we get to share ideas. That's at 1 p.m. Pacific every Sunday. And you can also join us at patreon.com slash conspirituality, where for as little as $5 a month, you can help support the podcast and get access to our Monday bonus episodes and other bonus materials. And I just want to add that some of you have reached out about when the podcast is released. It is released every Thursday evening. There has been something weird with Apple recently where it takes up to 24 hours to get onto Apple podcasts. Um, I've contacted Apple, my own hosting service. It's just the nature of it, unfortunately. I will say that if you find us on Spotify, it tends to go there quicker, as well as Stitcher. And you can, of course, just listen as soon as we publish on conspirituality.net. Conspirituality 49 TikTok Fulfillment Center with Abby Richards. On the road to the screen, a rich story can flatten into propaganda. On the road to the influencer economy, a complex teaching can degrade into a conspirituality meme. As the Oscar glitter fades, we look at how Amazon could never have signed off on a real Nomadland story any more than Gaia TV could ever have done justice to the spiritualities it exploits. In the ticker, I'll be looking at new research into data on the link between huffing essential oils and seizures. Matthew's looking at Miami Sentinel's Academy's announcement that they'll fire vaccinated teachers and wonders whether Kelly Brogan and Christiane Northrup sending kids and grandkids to this elite private school has something to do with it. In the jab, I'll be reviewing the state of the nation regarding vaccines and offering three key principles you can inject into conversations with those who are still hesitant. Our interview this week is with TikTok anti-disinformation activist Abby Richards, whose conspiracy pyramid and Tea Time QAnon explainers have gone viral on the next-gen platform. Matthew talks with Abby about her process, challenges, why she hates golf, and what Gen Xers and older cohorts like us should keep in mind when they wonder if the kids are all right. This is The Conspirituality Ticker, a weekly bullet point rundown on the ongoing pandemic of messianic influencers who spread medical misinformation and sell disaster spirituality. 
First up on the ticker today, all natural side effects. Now, there are a few things more ironic to me about our entrepreneurial wellness subculture than the conspiritualist focus on extremely rare side effects from vaccines that save millions of lives. On the one hand, they have this paranoid conviction that there is a vast money and power motivated conspiracy between big pharma, the mainstream media and the government subverting the process and aims of medical science. Meanwhile, the same demographic aggressively markets and endorses completely unregulated supplements, cleanses and alternative natural cures. Essential oils are a case in point. The rapidly growing global market reached 17 billion in 2017, it is projected to be at $27 billion next year. We've already covered the exploitive and cult-like multi-level marketing structure of the two giants on the essential oil stage, doTERRA and Young Living, along with their strategy of dancing deftly along the line of legality with regard to outrageous medical claims they make about their products. Recruits are sold on the opportunity to generate abundance by repping something natural that they believe in, while customers are in turn sold on the concept of being empowered to make their own health choices by using these highly concentrated plant extracts as alternative medicine. But with regard, first of all, to all that abundance, a recent pyramid scheme lawsuit shows that 94% of young living members make an average of $1 per month while still being required to purchase hundreds of dollars of oils themselves to stay on the books. And all claims to the contrary, there is zero evidence that any essential oil or aromatherapy treatment has the ability to cure any illness and data on the much-touted stress-relieving, mood-enhancing effects of the nice smells remains inconclusive. But at least they're safe, right? None of the dangerous side effects of Western medicine. Well, not quite. Some essential oils like tea tree and lavender can be endocrine disruptors, causing early breast growth in young girls and abnormal gynecomastia in young boys. But Preteen hormone balances aside, the most common side effect of essential oils is an allergic reaction which can result in respiratory or more commonly severe skin reactions. You should also fire up that nice aromatherapy diffuser you bought in the yoga gift shop nowhere near your baby in the first three months as oils like eucalyptus, fennel, peppermint, rosemary, wintergreen, and verbena, as lovely as they sound, are potentially poisonous via infants' more absorbent tissues. All of that leads me to the story this week in the Academic Times about research into the link between essential oils and epileptic seizures. The study was done at St. John's Medical College Hospital in Bengaluru, India. Essential oils are widely used in that country, especially eucalyptus and camphor, which are included in toothpaste, balms, and tablets. Now, this is a small study, and more research is definitely needed. But of the 350 cases reviewed, 55 were found to have used essential oils prior to their seizure. The researchers identified 40% of that group as having a first-time seizure that was essential oil-induced. The other 60% had suffered previous seizures, followed by a seizure that was then essential oil-provoked. Now, everyone in that group of 55 were advised to abstain from any exposure to essential oils from then onwards. They were followed up on over a one to three year period. 
The results? None of the first-time seizure patients experienced any further seizures, and 94% of the already diagnosed epileptic patients had no recurrence after going oil-free. But hey, even if they are unregulated, unsafe, and usually sold as part of an exploitive pyramid scheme, at least essential oils are natural, right? Oh, man. (laughs) That's just devastating. Um, And you know, what it makes me think of is... uh, with with um, people recovering from COVID and long COVID having lost their sense of smell, I heard this week that there is some preliminary advice from neurologists that smell retraining uh, is going to be advised. Um, you know, so there so there's suggestions that you know on a sort of disciplined, regular basis that you smell strong substances like coffee or peppermint or something like that. This is going to be a whole new avenue for the uh, young Aromatherapy. living. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I'm watching David Attenborough's new Netflix series on colors, which is fascinating. I'll watch anything that that man is involved with. Yeah. Right. But but this specific one, he goes into most. It's probably about colors, but he also goes into the chemicals that are in flowers and trees and plants and how they interact with animals and the idea that taking these highly concentrated oils and then rubbing them on our skin or putting them in our water and drinking them or diffusing them are either only healthy or at worst benign is completely goes against everything in nature and what creates those oils and scents in the first place. And so when you say something like that, like seeing these results of so many epileptic patients no longer having recurrences after going oil-free, I wonder what the crossover is between people who would think that that's bullshit, but then are also anti-vaccination or say that because these haven't been tested enough, then we should uh, then we shouldn't use them. It, it's part of that uh, dissonance that just seems to be recurring every time we find out about these this new research studies. I think that in order for information like this to really stick, not only do the studies have to be larger, but also yeah. I think we have to look into we have to look into all of the ritual elements that go into creating the essential oil experience because the way the way I've seen them marketed and applied. Um, there's kind of like a, I don't know, like a uh, almost almost religious liturgy involved in in you know getting out the diffuser and putting it in the right place in the house and yeah. fig- figuring out where to dab it on your body and getting the right roller and you know so people people th- th- it's very um, integratable with notions of pressure points and chakras and stuff like that so yeah yeah very, the, the, very compelling. The, the, the analogy is very much with like the incense diffuser of a religious ceremony or being anointed somehow, right? With, with totally. some sort of special holy substance. Yeah. yeah. And I especially think that the anointment comes in when we're talking about moms selling essential oils to other moms for their children, because the children are often being anointed like, like it's a christening or something like that. I think of the Netflix series that we did cover with the oils episode and how that one family who is like super oils users are putting it on their babies all the time. And then you find out research like this, but also thinking of the cultural ramifications, uh, my wife was,
was studying perfumery for a little while and I learned a lot more about oils than I ever thought I would. And one day she was talking with our floor mates who are Muslim and they, he was talking about these oil. He found out that she was using, you know, going to school for this. And so he was sharing some of the scents that he uses. But at one point they, and he's like, you know, we only put it on our clothing. We don't put it on our skin, which my mm. wife knew, because that's you don't put that on your skin directly. Like Muslim culture understands that. I'm sure there are other cultures that intuitively know not to put these chemicals on your skin. But in America, we don't seem to have that knowledge. Yeah, that couple wasn't, I think my brain broke when the guy was spraying <laughs> um, essential oil yes. of orange in a, in a, like a spray bottle on his children and in they the were sun. outside in the sun. And weren't they in Arizona or something like that? Oh my yes. gosh. It was so awful to watch. Yeah. And then when, when uh, hopefully not, but if any of their children have serious consequences yeah. like that, they're they're going to do what we see people do all the time. They're going to blame the food system or pharmaceutical companies or, and then not understanding that the, the base materials of pharmaceuticals are the same yeah. stuff that they're spraying on their children. Yeah. Dosage matters and then parts of the chemistry, but you're still working with the same base materials. And this is really all within the construction of the wellness space of this sort of odd dichotomy between what is natural and what is unnatural, right? And, right, and this, right. Th that, that it's, a, it's a very much a marketing tool to label something as being all natural, organic, you know, not having any of the, the negative baggage of, uh, of pharmaceuticals or, or something that is deemed unnatural or chemical. And it's, it's a completely false construct. All right, Derek and Julian, um, this story has everything. Uh, there are billionaires, billionaires in India who run cults, uh, a disgusting $17 million Miami Beach penthouse, kids from the families of the disinformation dozen, and an Instagram feed where you can clock the moment of an influencer's red pilling. So I'm talking about uh, Layla Sentner and the Sentner Academy. But it doesn't have anything to do with vaccines though, right? No, nothing to do with vaccines at okay. all. Uh, so, so the director, Layla Sentner of Sentner Academy. This is a swanky Miami private school where tuition starts at $15,000 a year. Well, it starts, starts, yes. but I just want to point out that that's for part-time preschool. Full-time preschool is $22,000 475 6th grade is $29,850. There are $3,000 in fees for all of these grades. And then last one that I noticed is that lunch is billed at $230 a month. And I went ahead and I... I, at my age, when I was seven, I remember we paid a dollar a day for lunch so that I brought it up with inflation. And so I was paying the about gluten, $48. Derek, <laughs> I was paying about $48 a month for lunch in wow. a public school. So this is, this is six times more. I, I just, yeah. Go on, Matthew. Um, yeah. Well, their Patreons must be rocking to be able to <laughs> just totally afford that. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Layla Sentner has told her teachers uh, or teachers that are intending to be vaccinated not to get vaccinated until school is out and that they won't be guaranteed a spot back at the school if they do get the jab. Uh, and she actually sent out a questionnaire, according to The New York Times, to determine this teacher's vaccine status. 
And it implied that there would be legal consequences if the teachers didn't disclose. So um, at this academy, children start the day with meditation. Uh, they are fed not Derek's like trashy uh, grade school <laughs> diet where he only paid $48 a month. I mean, holy shit, I can, I can still sort of see the cracks in the pudding you're talking about. Uh, all organic, gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free food. Um, and, but, but Sentner has this idea that, um, you know, that unvaccinated people are suffering from various conditions by simply being around vaccinated people. You might remember that last week we coined the term uh, reverse contagion anxiety, and that's what she's on about. So the email that she sent out read in part, tens of thousands of women, there's no citation here, all over the world have recently been reporting adverse reproductive issues simply from being in close proximity with those who have received any one of the COVID-19 injections. Uh, for example, irregular menses, bleeding, miscarriages, postmenopausal hemorrhaging, and amenorrhea. Okay, so the email got instantaneous international coverage. It was broken by uh, CBS Miami. Um, and it made it even to the White House briefing room and it riled up state lawmakers in Tallahassee. Uh, there's a state senator named Jason Pizzo who uh, immediately appealed to the State Department of Education and learned that the department wasn't going to take any action against the school because it has no policies in place on teacher vaccination. Now, bear in mind, this is a school that receives public funding through the voucher system. Uh, it also received over $800,000 in PPE, PPP funding last year mm -hmm. uh, to keep its doors open during the pandemic. But uh, I think the whole story raises some really kind of bizarre questions like, is this legal, first of all? I mean, can a business fire employees for getting a vaccine? Uh, would it violate uh, HIPAA privacy provisions or the ADA? Um, but then, like, if the vaccine is so poisonous that jabbed teachers will harm the children they're with, shouldn't the school also ban children whose parents have been vaccinated as well? I mean, uh, what, what are they are they did she sort of create in her brain this uh, an amount of contact hours that she thought would be too much or something like that? I mean, the parents are going to be closer to the children anyway and for longer. So wouldn't that be more negatively impactful? Or does the does, does the chain of reverse contagion transmission stop at one so that so that if a parent infects their child mm -hmm. with their vaccine, mm -hmm. it would stop there and not transmit to the other kids? I don't know. Yeah, it's some kind of some kind of magical thing. I also just have to say, like, what the fuck happened that that you're going to be in complete denial of covid being being contagious. But now you decide that vaccines are contagious, that you're going to be completely opposed to the tyranny of vaccine passports. But now you want to fire people for getting vaccinated and, and know their confidential medical records. I mean, it's, yeah. it's wild. And I actually did hear stuff through the course of the week from several influencers about how they were going to turn the tables now and, and make vaccinated people feel like the the lepers you know well that's one way of that's one way of putting it i suppose right <laughs> turning the tables anyway uh what about service workers what about the lunch ladies i mean they're they're handing out 230 dollars worth of food every month but aren't they actually getting a little bit too close to the kids what if they get vaccines are uh, you what, suggesting this is just performative no well well i don't know what about janitors i mean what i think is going on is that if it's as classist as it sounds like that it's not really about the vaccine but more about making sure the teachers actually share the ideology mm. 
Right. Uh huh. So, so the peop- people without power, we don't care about how contagious they are. Right? Not, not so much. If you're, if you're handing, if you're handing the children their organic smoothie, uh, you're probably, you're probably fine. But if you're actually going to, you know, uh, uh, communicate and emote with the children and be responsible for their historical education uh, or whatever, right? Then, then that becomes more important. Um, it also raises this really weird uh, sort of. I don't know, end game question for me, which is how isolated is isolated enough if the vaccine is contagious? Because more and more people are going to be vaccinated. Um, I mean, at a certain point, I think the Sentners are going to really need their own country uh, where they could like party party like it's 1859. I'm all for it. Right. Anyway, is this out of character for the Sentner Academy? It's not really. There's a page on their website that's titled Medical Freedom from Mandated Vaccines. uh, And this page goes through the typical anti-vax talking points that conflate vaccination with rising rates of ADHD, asthma, diabetes, autism. Uh, It says, quote, a lot of kids are suffering and it is up to us as a Miami international school community to rule out any and all possibilities contributing to the rise in chronic diseases and disabilities for our students before we, as a school, mandate anything that could possibly be causing so much harm to our students. Studies need to be urged to be conclusive as to whether common mandatory vaccinations lead to various common health disorders. Uh, uh. Then the page then the page points people towards medical and religious exemptions. Um, so the, here's the 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 next the the story just gets deeper though because the email doesn't send cite any sources but in it Sentner does say this was not an easy decision to make we made this decision with several doctors who are on the front line investing investigating the reported issues so which doctors shall we ask so uh, the the day the day. Of or after the email was sent, Christiane Northrup posted a selfie that's now deleted with Kelly Brogan uh, announcing their support for Sentner Academy because they both have kids in their families attending. Brogan lives in Florida. Northrup referred to her grandchildren attending the school. I think these presumably are the children of Christiane's daughter, Kate, who's a life coach, uh, and along with her mom, a distributor for the USANA MLM, uh, which sells herbs and, and shit like that. So she deleted this post? Yeah, she deleted the post and I was really, I was bummed that I didn't screenshot it, uh, but then I was very relieved to see that the Washington Post had actually reported on it before they before before she took it down. But it's it, that's this is funny actually because um, this is the first thing, I'm glad you brought it up because it's the first thing that I've seen Northrop walk back. She also deleted the MLK post. Ah, uh, right. Mm-hmm. From from the from the health and freedom conference. Hmm. Okay. Well, I, w- I wonder if there's some water testing going on that we haven't seen there before. Anyway, the PTA meetings at Sentner uh, must be pretty interesting, and I think they might be doubling as disinformation doesn't break out group coffee clutches. <laughs> uh, news reports note that the academy has invited has had as as special guests Robert F Kennedy and Dr Larry Palevsky as guest speakers. Um, uh, Brogan name drops Palevsky, who's a New York-based anti-vax pediatrician, in her last book. So there's a lot of connections here. Well, we now we now know all three of the names of the several doctors they talked to, right? Northrop, Brogan, and Palevsky. Right. Okay. So it, I got really interested. Who is Layla Sentner? Um, 
Her given name is Leila Samudi. She's a first-generation Iranian-American born in 1976. Uh, This same week, she posted that she was very happy her mom escaped Iran before the revolution. So there's some sort of political overtones around authoritarianism that she's trying to, she's playing on. Uh, She worked as an auditor for Deloitte after graduating from accountancy programs at uh, University of California and the University of SoCal. She founded House of Leila Maternity Wear, but that doesn't doesn't seem to have gone very far. Uh, in 2016, David Sentner, uh, a mega wealthy tech entrepreneur, proposed to her after organizing a flash mob to dance for her in Manhattan. Um, Sentner is a techpreneur who basically invented electronic car tolling or a big chunk of it. Uh, and once they got together, Layla became his CFO. Uh, they sold their highway toll administration company to a $13 billion private equity firm. Uh, and after they cashed out, they went on a spiritual quest. The Biscayne Times reports, quote, that existential examination, I suppose they were wondering what to do with all the piles of cash, <laughs> led to periodic trips to India and to receive spiritual counseling from the O&O Academy, a non-denominational meditation school. Layla Sentner, who told the Biscayne Times she had a rough childhood, says the sessions helped her come to terms with the past and fuel her passion for education, unquote. So what is O&O? O Academy. Uh, this is the corporate rebrand of the oneness movement founded by the Tamil godman oh. and real estate magnet and cult leader Kalki Bhagawan. Have you heard of this guy? No. Um, he was such a grifter that when the in, he's still alive, I think, when the Indian authorities raided his compound in 2019, investigating fraud, they found 67 million dollars in liquid assets just lying around, like stacks of gold, mm-hmm. bags of cash. He's following in following in Sai Baba's footsteps. He he had the same sort of thing. Pretty much. Uh, Kalki's firstborn son is named Krishna, of course, uh, and has taken over and from the, 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 the family dynasty. He looks quite managerial in the role. Uh, he has a partner, partner named Preeta, uh, and they mentored together with Tony Robbins, of course, uh, and Krishna claims he has 10 million followers in India. So this is where the Sentners, uh, they visited, I think she says in one post that they went uh, five times in one year. Um, so now, however, they are high-rolling investors and philanthropists, and Layla has opened Sentner Academy, and she talks about the school like it's her life calling after cashing out. It also looks like a bit of a, a vanity project. Um, in July, they listed their over-the-top totally garish Miami penthouse for $17 million. Um, there's, we're going to link to an estate agent's 3D walkthrough, and it's totally horrific. Um, I, I actually crowdsource tips for describing the aesthetics because I don't know much about interior design, and Twitter paid off coming back with, okay, so it looks like Miami Fancy, uh, Housewives of Atlantic City, Frigid Billionaire. Uh, my personal favorite was Gaddafi Chic. Um, and my favorite part of the layout was that there was a blue kitchen and dining room right next to an identical red kitchen and red dining room. (laughs) You told us to check it out and I did the 3D tour and you also warned not to have eaten before (laughs) and that was good advice. So I went in on an empty stomach because Penthouse doesn't really even describe what this thing is. No, it's very strange. Um, 
yeah, I, I don't, I can't imagine, like I felt my soul just draining away as I clicked through uh, and, and followed the, the, the circle. Did you see the weird uh, playrooms as well with nothing inside them for the children? Yes, oh my gosh. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was, there was a lot, there was the Ferrari children's right, right, bed. Right, yeah. uh, there, there was, there was a lot of gold. I mean, it was, it was kind of Trump meets, uh, the worst of Beverly Hills in, in terms of decor. It was really, really bad. So uh, back to the Academy, uh, what do the parents make of all of this? Uh, there was a parent named Greg Tatar uh, quoted by CBS who says, it's baffling. Why would she not want her teachers to get vac- vaccinated? Uh, I think he also says in that article that he himself got vaccinated. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering whether he's, he's going to be barred from the premises or something. But I, I empathize with him because if you go through Layla's Instagram account, there are zero signs of anti-vax activism until January 23rd of this year. It's uncanny. Uh, There's nothing. It's all family holiday stuff. Uh, You know, here, here's, I'm really excited about my school project. Here's me cutting the ribbon. Um, There's parties. Uh, The, the kids are gorgeous. Uh, But, but then on the 23rd, she posts two misleading posts about the VAERS system, uh, basically walking her followers through how not to understand the VAERS program, which is, um, you know, she's, she's sort of telling her followers that all of the reports have been verified or they've been proven or, or everybody's adverse reactions have, have been, have been, uh, you know, investigated when that's not true. Uh, but after the 23rd, it's wall to wall anti-vax materials. Uh, it looks like tons of copy pasta from various pseudoscience, uh, sites. Also the posts escalate. So she goes from posting, you know, two or three times a week to like several times per day. Um, so she also advertises that she's hosting Larry uh, Pilevsky on the dangers of vaccines and Jason Shurka uh, on saving the children. Um, uh, he's like a, a pyramid energy person and life coach. Uh, and then the save the children tagline for the event, obviously, you know, might has some resonance with the, the uh, Q adjacent movement of last summer. Um, she also posts lots of oversharing videos of her students having a great time without masks, hugging each other. And, you know, then I, when I saw how quickly this happened, I went back to the medical freedom page on the website to check as to when it was posted. And Web Archive shows that it didn't show up until April 6th, which is, what, three weeks ago? So, so the the public facing statement on you know we this is this is how we feel about uh, vaccines as a school is three weeks old. Um, so something happened to Layla, and it and it happened really really fast. Uh, and it just reminds me of all of the red pilling stories that we've heard over the past year, uh, and how quickly. Uh, you know, somebody can can completely do an about face. And I guess what I really wonder is whether or not the the wealth of the Sentners uh, is going to buffer them from the fallout of this or whether it means that they can actually maybe afford some some good advice. I am not going to pretend to ever know what it's like to be a billionaire. Um, and I am not particularly uh, against billionaires in any capacity, although they should pay more taxes, which hopefully will happen here in America. But if you 
acquire that much money and then go on a spiritual quest. From my understanding of the spiritual practices, including India, uh, charity is a big component of it. So I'm wondering what happens when you go on this spiritual quest and you meet a guru who gives you instruction and your decision to help the world is to start an extremely elite private academy instead of using that money in some sort of charitable means. Well, they do have a foundation and they are uh, referred to in a lot of media pieces that might be puff pieces as philanthropists, but I, I haven't dug into what they're, what they're actually funding, where, the, where, where any of their money is going. It sounds like uh, the guru wasn't stashing millions of dollars in gold bullion around his house because he wanted to donate it to the, uh, you know, the poor in his, in his uh, neighborhood right <laughs> yeah and, and to be fair that's great i mean if they have a philanthropical arm that actually does some good that's great but it's just from from what i'm seeing here is if your life's calling is education and then you're actually making education very hard for people if that's what you're actually using your money for that just seems suspect to me she did bring in jason shirka though to give the kids a, a workshop in manifesting abundance though <laughs> a, a wonderful so, service you know, she, is, she is spreading the 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 wealth around but i mean you know just on a serious note this is the same week that tucker carlson incited his audience to publicly confront families in the street where children are wearing masks so um, i file all of this into the general category of you know children are going to continue to be caught in the middle here and are going to be weaponized in this emerging culture war what also jumped out when you had mentioned about all of the real estate holdings that they, they bought up in Miami and this whole idea of a medical freedom institute, it reminds me of what's happening in Austin and Lake Travis and the the Mickey Willis uh, the, uh, episode that we covered, what's going on there, and then come to find out this same week that on it was sold to Unilever. Right. And I don't know the money, but I do know that it was founded by Aubrey Marcus, who was in the room at the announcement of that real estate and possibly involved, and that Joe Rogan was an early investor on it. So I'm sure he did pretty well from that sale. And you have this emerging medical freedom community forming in Austin. And so here you have two examples of places that are very anti-vax and are getting a hold of a lot of real estate. We are watching in real time this cult mentality form. And I also want to add that the congressional redistricting, redistricting just happened where New York and California lost seats and Texas and Florida gained seats for the next 10 years. And so the, the politicians that represent these areas are going to be looking at the moneyed interests. So we're going we're gonna to see a real bifurcation of the medical system, even more so than we have in the coming years if this continues. We were talking a little bit about this before we, we hit record. Um, I think it's extraordinary to think about wealthy people investing in Miami Beach when my understanding is that there's a lot of insurance companies that, that won't vet properties because of sea level rise and so on. I'd be really interested to know like whether there's pre-planning that goes into that where they, they buy in regions of the city that 
they feel uh, will not be underwater or won't be threatened, and insurance doesn't really mean anything to them because they can rebuild everything with cash. It just doesn't. It doesn't make seem sense. No, Miami Beach itself. I mean, no, Miami. There is no. There is no protection for Miami right. Beach. Miami, the city, possibly, but Miami yeah. Beach is one of the hottest regions in the country right now for real estate, and you are completely surrounded when you're there. And it's and it's flat. It's there's no rise, right? Like it's like at the, it's oh, at no. sea level. Oh, it's just no. sand in the middle of the water in isthmus. I haven't been there, right? Oh yeah, when when and you you can you can when I when I've been there a few times, you can walk across the entirety of it in under ten minutes. I mean, you're talking bl- right. blocks. You're talking a few right. blocks wide. Uh, that that's it. There's no protection whatsoever there. And the great owners, who must lose their land in an upheaval, the great owners with access to history, with eyes to read history and to know the great fact, when property accumulates in too few hands, it is taken away. And that companion fact, when a majority of the people are hungry and cold, they will take by force what they need. And the little screaming fact that sounds through all history, Repression works only to strengthen and knit the repressed. The great owners ignored the three cries of history. The land fell into fewer hands. The number of the dispossessed increased. And every effort of the great owners was directed at repression. The money was spent for arms, for gas to protect the great holdings. And spies were sent to catch the murmuring of revolt so that it might be stamped out. The changing economy was ignored, plans for the change ignored, and only means to destroy revolt were considered, while the causes of revolt went on. It's John Steinbeck from The Grapes of Wrath. A slam-dunk opportunity to educate the American public about the disappearing safety net, an outright rejection of aging that's affecting tens of thousands of seniors, a number that grows by the year, was sadly missed when Nomadland was made into a movie. I'm not surprised that it won Best Picture of the Year. It tells the aspirational story of pulling yourselves up by the bootstraps despite your circumstances, a founding principle of the American ethos. But as Steinbeck knew, and as the journalist behind the book, Jessica Bruder, knew, bootstraps are an illusion. Credit Bruder for her detailed investigative work in the tradition of Barbara Ehrenreich and Rebecca Solnit. The journalist spent years on the road living and working alongside those work ampers, the name given to the growing number of Americans living in campers, vans, even Priuses, traveling from gig to gig depending on the season for meager wages, no health benefits, no assurances whatsoever. She befriended them and learned their stories. In fact, to the film's credit, most of the actors are the people in the book. And I also want to congratulate Chloe Zhao for her victories, the first Asian woman to win Best Director Award. Frances McDormand ended up winning Actress of the Year, but the actual people from the book Nomadland were equally important in the film. And, I hope, as non-professional actors, they were paid their worth. 
It is a powerful film, and Bruder does write about their hearty attitudes. People are resilient. But she writes about so much more, and what's left out of the film is disheartening. The opening scene finds McDormand's character, Fern, shitting in the middle of the desert. You're immediately swept into the turmoil of nomad life. Moments later, something strange happens. You see the workers inside of an actual Amazon factory. In 2017, Jeff Bezos predicted that by 2020, a full one quarter of all work campers would have been employed in an Amazon factory at some point. And putting it lightly, Nomadland, the book, is a long critique of Amazon's role in cutting the safety net of aging Americans, skirting labor laws at every turn, and fighting unionization every step of the way. We really are still picking the grapes that the Joads clawed at. And everyone who saw the film remembers Linda May, the 60-something dreamer who plans on building an earthship in the middle of the desert. And in real life, she acquires the land to do just that. But what guts me is the Facebook post that May wrote about Amazon that was in the book, but that didn't make the script. And here it is in full. Quote, Someone asked, Why do you want a homestead? To be independent, get out of the rat race, support local businesses, buy only American-made. Stop buying stuff I don't need to impress people I don't like. Right now I am working in a big warehouse for a major online supplier. The stuff is crap, all made somewhere else in the world where they don't have any child labor laws, where the workers labor 14 to 16 hour days without meals or bathroom breaks. There is one million square feet in this warehouse packed with stuff that won't last a month. It is all going to the landfill. This company has hundreds of warehouses. Our economy is built on the backs of slaves we keep in other countries, like China, India, Mexico, any third world country with a cheap labor force where we don't have to see them but where we can enjoy the fruits of their labor. This American corporation is probably the biggest slave owner in the world. Radical, I know, but this is what goes through my head when I'm at work. There is nothing in that warehouse of substance. It enslaved the buyers who use their credit to purchase that shit. Keeps them in jobs they have to pay their debts. It's really depressing to be there. End quote. How were they able to film inside of an actual Amazon warehouse? According to a 2020 interview, McDormand simply called Amazon's senior VP of development and got access. But if I had to guess, I'm betting that Amazon read the script first. I've done enough work in movies to know what access entails. Any trace of dissension from gig workers or complaints about the rigors of the job didn't make the final cut. Besides, the richest man in the world isn't going to allow criticism in a movie that includes his logo or his space. It also won't include statistics Bruder makes clear in the book, such as the fact that nearly twice as many women are poor in America than men, or that women get an average $341 a month less than their male counterparts in Social Security and that there are only a dozen counties and one metro area in the entire country where a minimum wage worker can afford a one-bedroom apartment. 
that Amazon has a week of work hardening for new gig workers to become accustomed to the physical and emotional demands of 10-hour shifts, which require walking, squatting, and kneeling across 20 miles of concrete space. Or mention the dispensers of free pain relievers mounted in those warehouses, and what kind of addiction ensues from those free pills. Or the Amazon cold shoulder given to workers that speak out against the company's labor practices. And you're certainly not going to hear the anecdotes of these workers about suicide being their exit strategy, which doesn't seem to be a big deal to them given that they live in the desert anyway. That's what's in the book. Better to focus on the desert sunsets and makeshift spa sessions with cucumbers and ice water. America has a sordid relationship with death anyway, and an even more fraught relationship with aging. We hate it. Growing numbers of people of all ages inject toxins into their faces to look young, and we think nothing of this strange ritual of avoidance and self-loathing. Forget the wisdom of aging. We prefer the lackluster virality of youth. If the cost includes sentencing more and more seniors to public lands where they fend for themselves in broken-down campers, so be it. Better to uphold the illusion than care for the wise. That's how Nomadland won Picture of the Year. It honors the age-old illusion that hard work pays off even though the reality is that it barely pays anything except, as Marvin Gaye once sang... While watching the film, I just couldn't help noticing parallels to the wellness industry we spend so much time contemplating on this podcast. The resistance to aging, the idea that we can defeat nature with just enough supplements and sacred breathwork and nootropics, that we can avoid discussing the slave labor that did and still provides for our privileges. The message is never to age gracefully. It's just don't age. To borrow a sentiment from Matthew, the only thing being sold in Nomadland, the movie, is aspiration. The desire to rise above the circumstances by ignoring an investigation of what led to those circumstances in the first place. The book lays it out. The movie avoids the ugly reality at all costs. And the producers were rewarded for their allegiance to turning a blind eye. As Wilfred Chan succinctly observed in a February critique in the online magazine Vulture, quote, Because the film is primarily a character study of Fern, it exchanges Bruder's sharp indignation over capitalist exploitation for a muddled message about individual freedom that downplays the real stakes of gig labor, end quote. Continuing along those lines, Jack Hamilton wrote one of the best critiques for Slate, as he frames it, quote, When the film offers Fern a way out of poverty and she chooses not to take it, it's effectively saying, hey, some people are just meant to live this way, which is what rich people have told themselves about poor people for as long as those two groups have existed, end quote. The truth is Americans love our illusions. Earlier this week, Rick Santorum a man who only a decade ago ran a moderately successful presidential campaign, said, well, he said this. We came here 
and created a blank slate. We, we birthed a nation from nothing. I mean, there's nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but, if, but candidly, that, that, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. The twisted fantasies of the colonizer remain alive and, well, not exactly well, but present. Hamilton notes that romanticizing, homesteading the American West persists, ultimately blinding us to the hard truths about how we actually treat our citizens, the stuff of capitalist wet dreams. He also noticed that the film was set in 2011 instead of 2018 when the film was shot for a reason. If it was current, the filmmakers would have had to have grappled with MAGA, and Zhao explicitly said she wanted to avoid politics. But how do you avoid politics when politics created the mess that's driving an increasing number of seniors into vans? Discussing MAGA would have forced an even more inconvenient truth to emerge. The people who've been tossed aside are the same people that supported and support Donald Trump in droves. The filmmakers try to have it both ways and fail. Avoid the pain point of politics by setting it back in time, but weirdly featuring a very modern Amazon warehouse. Hamilton's critique was written a few days before the Oscars, but his ending is still worth quoting in full. Discussing things like MAGA and QAnon, he concludes, quote, That's obviously a much more complicated and uglier story. And it's one that Nomad's Land's makers are about as eager to get into as Nomad's Land's viewers are eager to hear it. Telling that story well would make for a better movie, and a far more difficult one. So instead, we get beautiful sunsets and transformational acting, a film about poverty that flatters its makers for making it and its audience for watching it. That audience is certainly not the people that Nomadland is actually about. And that audience likely doesn't want to spend much more time thinking about those people once the movie is over. Nomadland makes sure they don't have to. And if the film wins big on Sunday, that will surely be a reason why. End quote. And the film won big, as we know. I'm also guessing that next year, Exterminate All the Brutes, the brilliant and brutally introspective docu-series on HBO by Raoul Peck, won't be shortlisted for a prize, even though the series grapples with what America actually is, while even concluding with some semblance of hope. The problem is that on the way to hope, you have to tread through the suffocating thickness of white supremacy, racism, xenophobia, politics, the thing the filmmakers of Nomadland wanted to ignore. And time and again, ignorance awards you a trophy for participating in the illusion. All right, so I have not seen Nomadland, uh, so I really appreciated getting the heads up, Derek. And, and I only heard about Bruder's book from you, too, um, but I've also read some reviews. I can't say that I'm that surprised about the laundering of the story here for the small screen, Um you know, you mentioned that Amazon must have read and approved the script to grant the team that access, which is, you know, kind of stunning to see. I mean, we don't know that, but we, we do know that the director's team romanced them. I found in one article um, uh, this thing about uh, 
The filmmakers have given mixed reviews, answers about whether No Man Land is a political movie. Uh, Zhao told IndieWire last September that she wanted to avoid politics. Quote, I tried to focus on the human experience and things that I feel go beyond political statements to be more universal, the loss of a loved one, searching for home. Um, she told Vulture's Alison Wilmore that politics were embedded into No Man's Land every frame. If you look deeply, it's just, yes, there's the beautiful sunset behind it. Uh, but in an interview with The Wrap earlier this month, Zhao's partner and cinematographer Joshua James Richards says it was, quote, a weird argument to say the movie is making a big critical statement about Amazon. Quote, I mean, we simply show Fern working there. We also show a Ford Econoline as well, but I don't think we're making a big critical statement about Ford. Uh, obviously, you can find politics in anything, unquote. Uh, such a bullshit response. <laughs> it sounds like he didn't read the book. Yeah, I mean, it's such bullshit. The book was about, yes, and as I mentioned in the piece, there were elements of the resilience aspect, which is very important. Mm-hmm. But this was an investigative book about labor practices, and it was heavily focused on Amazon. Right. Uh, pulling Ford into that is the biggest amount of whataboutism that I've seen yeah, uh, in right. any of this reporting. Yeah, it's right. it's interesting. I mean, I, I watched the film over the over the previous uh, the last night and the night before, and I watched uh, several different interviews and and, and little documentary uh, featurettes of PBS one in particular that I thought was really fantastic. Um, Watching the film, I kind of felt like they were caught between, on the one hand, telling the story of the book, but on the other hand, this Terrence Malick-influenced kind of, you know, very, very uh, self-reflective, very, very subjective, very, very all of the Twilight shots, and then using lots of Ludovico Einaudi. So there was an atmospheric, it was like there was an atmospheric art film they wanted to make about the unbearable sort of uh, emo- emotional experience of, of growing older in this tragic way. But, but that is, right. they can't help but romanticize it because of that setting. Right. And then, you know, on the other hand, you have this very, this very painful story of what is going on with, uh, with people getting older in this kind of exploitive uh, uh, economy. Deciding as you age that you want to get in an RV or a camper and live your life out there is a perfectly fine decision and people do it. In fact, uh, Bruder talks about the dichotomy of seeing the work campers in the same camps as people in $40,000 campers that are just out for the summer touring the country. But even if if you decided that you don't want to work in an office and you want to live this life, that is totally fine. And some of the people actually have made that decision, even though they didn't have to. But the point of the book is that tens of thousands of people Mm -hmm. didn't have a Mm -hmm. choice. And that is what the movie missed in every facet. You know, um, there, there were two ideas that sort of came up for me, uh, as I listened to your review. Um, and one was, one was, um, the notion of strategic transparency, have I have I given this? Have I talked about this term before? No, I I don't recognize it. Um, okay, so um, it's it's where someone or something in power discloses enough of the collateral damage of what they do to make people believe that they're honest and trustworthy and they're telling the whole story. 
Um, so I owe this concept to Professor Anne Gleig, who studies abuse in, in Buddhist organizations. And what she noticed in some of the damage control statements and half apologies uh, released by embattled leaders accused of abuse and their, and their lieutenants was that the talking points would usually admit enough wrongdoing to make forgiveness seem reasonable and also to bolster support with the base. But this is done with the knowledge that if you disclose the full ugly truth, the organization, the relationships would all implode. So, um, you know, if you think of a guy cheating on his wife, um, you know, she knows that he's been flirting with a coworker. Um, She confronts him. He confesses in tears that they've been having an affair. But then he leaves out how much credit card debt he's racked up to support the affair and that actually he's been visiting sex workers on every business trip and not telling her he's been doing Coke and Viagra or whatever. Uh, but the sentimentality of his confession makes him look trustworthy. He's so connected, so heartfelt. You know, he's, he really wants to make, make good. And it, it sounds like this is what's happened with Bruder's book. <laughs> as it's moved to the small screen that yes there's a there's a minimization of the issues of the book but there's also a deflection through sentimentality and like i already know without watching it that that francis mcnormand is going to blow me away because she's an incredible actress actor she always does she deserves every accolade out there and really could we expect a great actor to turn down a great part on behalf of a very complex politics? No. Like, I don't think so. No. But I, I, I want to interject that McDormand talks about having grown up in a similar environment in a trailer park, and I come from that. My grandfather owned a trailer park, so I kind of know that environment myself. And that, you know, there was this origin story that she put forward about Nomadland. And again, the acting is great. The movie, if you don't know the book, the movie is a good movie. So I want to be clear on that. Right. But then during her acceptance speech, she talked about how everyone needs to get back to the movie theater and see all of these movies where they're supposed to be made for in a movie theater. And right there, I saw a serious disconnection with where the rest of the culture was at in a completely different manner, because this is an example of like the Hollywood mentality that we need to go to movies. I, Everyone that I know, and myself included, we're not really looking forward to go like we're not like we need to get back to movie theaters like we've created a culture now where we can have a better experience in our living room and i'm not a, i'm not against that but i'm pointing this out because there's this romanticizing aspect that she's bringing forward so when i saw her do it about her industry i wondered how much of that translated into the process of her filming this after i'm sure she read the book so that you know what they actually portrayed i wonder if there was the same sort of disconnection with the culture that took part. Well, I mean, what is she saying at, at the Oscars? Is she saying that um, is, she, is she saying that the movies are the place where we connect with our dreams? That sort of thing. No, it was specific. I mean, no, it didn't even go that deep. It was just. I mean, it was. It was a moment where she said, "As soon as we can." gather your family and friends and get back into theaters and watch all of these movies. So she was making a case for her industry. Oh, I see. Okay, right. So as, as soon yeah. as you can, all of you 
folks who are out there in your RVs need to drive into the nearest city and <laughs> go and see the movie in the theater, right? Well, you know, I think it would be cool if the theaters uh, gave their parking lots to the to the RV campers, yeah. to the work campers, right? So that they didn't have to get harassed. That was a big part of the book, actually, that, uh, you know, they, they there is an app and a network on social media for work campers in every town to know what parking lots they can park. They have, like, legal parking lots, like Walmart. Walmart, for example, a number of them offer that for work campers, even if they right. don't work there. Some right. are, some are, hey, you can get away with it. And then some are like, don't park here. So that, that actually exists. So yeah, let the movie theaters offer that service. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to say, Derek, too, in terms of the, the, the lifestyle choice piece, right? That, that I, I have no doubt that there are certain people for whom it really genuinely is a lifestyle choice. But even watching the film, I had moments where I was like, yeah, it sounds like you've you've come up with a rationalization for the fact that you're in this really desperate situation and this is this is how you're making the best of it, you know. Yeah, As, that's the resilience aspect. Yeah, and so then then you're talking about the freedom and the fact that you're not part you you don't have the boot of a mortgage on your neck and you're so you're so relieved now to be living this lifestyle, right? But I think I think Julian, you sent over Slack the uh, the PBS sort of companion piece to the film that detailed yeah. the the kind of uh, grandfather of yes. the work, work camping yes. industry or community uh, who actually has wound up making, I don't know, $100,000 a year on YouTube mm-hmm. More. through releasing. Okay. So, so, but he, but he, I was struck by uh, the frankness both of him, but of everybody who is gathering in his workshops about, okay, well, social security is going to pay out maybe 600 a month. Uh, and that might be all you have. And, and I'm thinking, okay, well, so I, I don't know what it means for that to be a lifestyle choice when you cash, you have nothing but your social security check, you're cashing that for gas and a craft dinner that you're going to cook in your camper. Like what, so, so what happens when, when these folks get sick? What happens? Do they drive off the cliff at the end of life? Like, what do they leave enough gas in the car to end it all? Like, what I don't understand. It doesn't sound like a lifestyle choice. It sounds like if you can be resilient, it's because you you have to be until the curtains close. There's a section at near the end of the book where she talks to a few people about that. And first in in the book, she goes into what happens when some of the people have health problems, uh, which is, you know, they either go into debt, they have to reach out to family, whatever it is. Uh, But specifically, there's one of the most haunting paragraphs in the book is when she a few different people just say, well, we're in the desert. I'm just going to walk out and then kill myself and then someone will find me at some point. And that, that is the attitude. Does she track, wait, so, sorry, sorry. Does she track that? Like, does she talk to people and then she sort of follows up and sees that that's what they did? No, no, it was, well, Bruder spent years on the road, months Shit. at a time working and living with these people. So, right, I right. mean, again, credit to her for this book. Like I am, it is an amazing book to have, she put herself into that. She worked for Amazon, but no, these are all interviews with Dozens yeah. or hundreds of people that she came into contact and with. And it seems like the one that made it into the movie is, is uh, the older lady who's, who's talking about contemplating killing herself by drinking a, a, a bottle of vodka or something and, and leaving, on the, uh, leaving on the gas, the propane. Um, and if she's still alive in the morning, she'll just light a cigarette. 
but the reason she doesn't do it is her dogs, right? She can't, she can't bear the thought of leaving her dogs alone and, and doing that to them. The two things from, from your um, excellent piece that you did on it, Derek, that, that stood out to me were, A, that it's so many women who are then doing this backbreaking work in their in their final sort of decade or two of life, right? That they're that they're in this desperate situation. On the other, I had no idea that social security paid out less to women than to men. By a lot, yeah. Yeah. Like it's like half, it sounded like, right? Uh, three, I believe the number was three hundred and forty one dollars a month less. So I don't know if I that's see. actually half. But, but if yeah. they're yeah, if they're at five to six hundred dollars a month that they're getting, then that's more than half for some people. That's that's insane that, that hasn't been reformed yet. Well, the argument is that men work men get paid more and work longer than women. So that's, that's the actual argument I for why see. they get, okay. why they I get see. paid less. I see. Cause it's a, it's a, it's a calculation based on that. Yes. Yeah. B- based, it's, based upon it, based, based upon totally ignoring domestic labor and childbearing yeah. and, oh, yeah. and, yeah. and every, everything that's actually <laughs> yeah. real every, and real work. Yes. Right. God damn it. So, um, I, so I'm thinking about my own grandmothers and my own grandfathers and, like the notion that, uh, okay, so so I can think of one amongst the four who I think would consider buying uh, a vehicle at a certain point uh, and setting out on the road. The other three can't see it. Um, but the thing that I, I I mean we're talking about we're talking about the folks as though they're making personal individual lifestyle choices and in a way they are but what happens to the fact that we don't get to enjoy them where we are like what happens to the fact that um okay well maybe they're posting their videos to youtube and trying to monetize things but like i i also want my grandmother to to be in a place where I can go and take care of her laundry and clean her house, but also sit down and hear stories from her. And if she has to drive, you know, to the next uh, sort of fulfillment center job or, you know, do leaf blowing or something like that, I'm not going to be able to do that. And I suppose you could, you could sort of, you know, brush that away and say, well, you know, there's FaceTime and shit like that. And, you know, you can always be in touch, but I don't know. I don't know, man. Like I can't imagine that this is, this is good for uh, families actually. No, it's historically, you lived with your family your entire lives right. until like that, that was just part of it. This, this concept of, and I left when I was, you know, college at 18 and I never returned home. And, and that is very much my generation and maybe a generation or two before that. But besides that humans stuck together through four or five generations and then just continued. So this model that we're working with right now is extremely new. And then as we can see, this is one of the consequences of that model. And it, I also believe that a large part of this is also our own obsession with youth with the this constant, we want to be younger, we want to look younger, we'll do everything to just feel younger. I just read a New York Times article this morning about how Generation X is now entering the AARP age. Um, and, and it just, the article talked about how much Gen X has refused to age, which I think is a damaging aspect of it. And, and so 
I couldn't imagine, I, I don't have grandparents anymore, but even my parents, fortunately, both, my mom's retiring next month, actually, uh, both have pensions. I, I, I don't imagine I'd have to face them with this life, but how about the three of us? Like we, like, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a job that I worked with for over four decades. Like both my parents, I don't have a pension plan going on right now. No, no. And so like watching this movie, it also just struck me. It's like 60, 70 isn't that far away from 45. And so if we're going to continue to see the deterioration of the safety nets, which we're seeing a lot of in the last two decades in America, where does that leave our generation? And how, we, like, if we don't have the foresight to understand that, we're going to be part of this economy as well. It leaves our generation thinking about going to the movies or being told to go to the movies. Because the thing is, is that like, I, maybe this feels a little bit, um, uh, I don't know, left field, but I see a parallel between the laundering of this research into a fictional narrative and what late stage capitalism does to culture itself in the sense that like, you know, Amazon itself is a great actor. <laughs> it commands the world stage. You know, it speaks to everyone. It anticipates our needs. It nails all the lines. It makes the theater of global capitalism look gorgeous, gritty, uh, heroic. So, I mean, why, first of all, why wouldn't the company open their doors and put on the best show they can and help launder the subject? But there's this, there's this way in which like it, it, you know, I, I think it's wonderful that actors are able to do their craft. And it sounds like Zhao did a great job with the sunsets. And, but if Zhao is close to my age or our age, then maybe she also wants to make a movie about what's going to happen to us. You know, beyond beyond how how plucky we can be, uh, beyond how um, what a good attitude we can have, or or you know how how we can we can pick up and, and carry on. I can't read her intentions. I mean, I've read what she's written. Uh, Jessica Bruder was very uh, grateful for the movie. She really enjoyed it from the interviews that I've read. Uh, I it, positively the movie winning will increase book sales. So that could help open more people's eyes to the real problems here. Those are all net positives, but I just feel like something was seriously missed. But if she made the movie of the actual book, it wouldn't have won an Oscar. It wouldn't have won all the awards. So it, you know, how much of it was intentional and going for a specific audience and how much of it was just the, the movie she in her heart wanted to make. I, I can't tell that. I mean, do, do you, are, are you guys familiar with Terrence Malick? Do you, do you know his, his films? Not so much. So the one that, that I was really thinking of was, uh, was, uh, oh God, what's it called? The one with Richard Gere. Um, I think it's the second film, Days of Heaven. So Days of Heaven is, is really about the, these these migrant workers who who travel from town to town in sort of the the, the early part of the twentieth century and and take on all these different kind of jobs and it's the same sort of thing it's like the romance between these two people against all of these incredible uh, beautiful but tragic uh, 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 vistas you know and and twilight sort of settings and yeah I feel I I don't know how much of it 
I, I would wonder how much of it is motivated by wanting to stay away from, from some of these more difficult topics and how much of it is just having this kind of artistic vision. Well, you know, I think um, the mold for a lot of this um, aestheticization of struggle is set for me with uh, a famous American film called uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. Do, did you guys see that? No, I don't no. think so. Um, probably probably 1950s uh and it's an extraordinary narrative arc through the lives of three returning world war ii vets who are all suffering from ptsd but of course don't have the language for it uh and one believes that his fiance could never possibly love him because he's disabled uh another one is an alcoholic who can't uh, hold down a job um but there's this there's this really sort of rich portrayal of um, coming to grips with uh, traumatic events, but then against the the sort of contrast and the paradox of a growing and booming and um, really spiritually bypassing economy and the detritus of the war. And it kind of, spoiler alert, spoiler alert it winds up in uh, an airfield of rusted out American fighter planes, like, like just junked planes where the one of the main characters who used to be a pilot or a bombardier, I can't remember, uh, but he's sort of having his final breakdown with regard to how is he going to continue in his life and, and is he going to be able to rouse himself enough to be able to love his fiance in a way that's respectable. Uh, and, you know, they he finally, and he, he finally makes some sort of commitment. We don't know how it's going to play out, but as the music soars, um, you know, he grabs her and and he he proposes and she accepts and she, he says something like you know we're going to be knocked around you understand that right uh, and she says yes I understand it and he says it's going to be really difficult you know that and he's doing two things he's he's talking about his own uh, his own past coming out of this horrible war and he's also predicting the future of the American project but the but the music soars and the whole sort of narrative collapses into this duet where what happens between these two people is the most important thing. And we can see the trashed planes behind them as kind of like the structural evidence of the of the ruin of the world. But but what's more important is the personal story. And that's what the movies do. That's what they just do. Like uh, that's and you're right. You're right, Derek. You 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 film Bruder's book and it's not going to win the Oscar. And that's we just have to we really have to live with that. The jab. Our weekly segment on the crucial COVID vaccine and the misinformation conspiritualists love to spread about it. So what's going on here in April 2021 with the jab? Do we have a reason to still exist now that 42% of the U.S. population has received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine and 28% are fully vaccinated? The trend is really good, right? Yes. But vaccine hesitancy and anti-vax activism are still very strong. A recent NPR Marist poll showed that one in four Americans would refuse the vaccine, which is a significant threat to the 80 to 85% herd immunity numbers we need to effectively contain COVID. If you're listening to this, 
I know you're probably already in the choir of those who understand the efficacy and safety of the vaccines, although it was very touching and encouraging a couple of weeks ago to hear from several people who had previously been either anti-vaccine or just hesitant, but then decided to get vaccinated based on the work we do here on the podcast. We know that when it comes to hardcore anti-vaxxers, we can't really make a difference. Just like any dug-in conspiracy theorists, arguing with them doesn't seem to help. They've come to inhabit an alternate reality, complete with its own facts, assumptions, and logic. And as flawed as all of that is, it's perpetuated by a circular form of reasoning that self-inoculates against conflicting data by using paranoid generalizations about fake mainstream news and nefarious big pharma. As Jonathan Berman, the author of the book Anti-Vaxxers, How to Challenge a Misinformed Movement, pointed out when we had him on the show, roughly 2% of the population are in that hardcore anti-vax group, but around 20% of the population are vaccine hesitant. They're susceptible, they're vulnerable to the propaganda. So how do we address this? How do we, in a way, do our part if you feel cold? To do so, you know, the, the yoga and wellness community, such as it is, turns out to be disproportionately represented in that 20% of the vaccine hesitant population, along with their shoehorned far right evangelical neighbors. We have a real time stress test of these numbers right now. And in terms of moving the needle, the anti-vaxxers actually appear to be winning. As a recent BuzzFeed news article shows, they're doing so by leveraging the digital tools that enable scary misrepresentations of data to go viral, like claims that unvaccinated women's menstrual cycles, fertility, and even pregnancies can be negatively impacted via some kind of magical contagion from women or men who've been vaccinated, or confusion about the statistical risks of blood clots and even fear-mongering about covered-up deaths. Once any of these false claims is believed by someone who was sitting on the fence, it can become very difficult to overcome the visceral emotional conviction that the vaccines must be dangerous and the truth is being hidden. So my question is, might it be possible to immunize people from this kind of misinformation? I know there's no easy answer to this, but I'm a big fan of the idea that the more we model lucid reasoning in the world, the more we inject certain key principles into the discourse, the more we increase the likelihood of people coming into contact with good sense-making in ways that, every now and again, will illuminate the bulb over the head of someone ready to pop. So, If you know someone like that, here are three quick principles. The first is the law of large numbers. So though it has happened before, it is unusual to have a globally shared experience like the one we're going through with the pandemic, with millions of people getting vaccinated, if they're lucky, all at once. The larger the numbers get in any data set, the higher the likelihood for really low probability occurrences. The recent incidence of blood clots is an excellent example. With the AstraZeneca vaccine, the incidence has been slightly higher than one per 100,000. That's too high. 
But the good news is that it is treatable and doctors now have identified it and know how to recognize the symptoms. With the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the blood clot incidence has been at around two per million. Now think of it this way. Roughly one in 11 million plane flights end in a crash, which means it is extremely rare to have been in a plane crash. But the law of large numbers says that if you gather data on a large enough group of people, you will inevitably then find a significant number who've had the experience of being in a crash. This doesn't increase the risks of air travel for any individual, but it may increase an amplified perception of that risk. Now, the fact is, if you look at the numbers, you are 100 times more likely to die in a car accident than a plane crash. But of course, way more people are terrified of flying than of driving. We're not intuitively good at large numbers. So here's the important context-creating statistic. The incidence of blood clots from COVID infection is around 16%. That's 16,000 per 100,000 and 160,000 per million as compared to the risk of 1 in 100,000 for AstraZeneca and 2 per million for Johnson & Johnson. The second principle is correlation versus causation and anecdotes versus evidence. These two are related and they're fairly quick distinctions I want to make. Simply stated, the plural of anecdote is not evidence. Anecdotes are not an endpoint of scientific inquiry, but they can be a good place to start. All stories, no matter how many, gathered from the wild about scary side effects that have not been subjected to careful analysis are still anecdotes. They do not add up to evidence, though they may indicate the need for further research. In one sense, they illustrate the law of large numbers that we were just talking about, but beyond that, they're just stories without any guardrails on verifying important details and causal relationships. Correlation is not Causation means that the fact that I kissed my wedding ring right before buying the winning lottery ticket, for example, does not mean that this caused me to win. By the same token, getting vaccinated and later dying of liver failure or developing a rare disorder may in fact be causally unrelated, even though the correlation can seem like a slam dunk. Likewise, your common cold almost certainly would have resolved itself whether or not you were megadosing on echinacea. And third, the background rate. One very important question when looking at the incidence of certain new conditions in trial groups for any kind of medical research is the background rate. This means the number of people in the general population who develop certain conditions anyway, regardless of whether or not they are in a trial group for a drug. Comparing the incidence of something like Bell's palsy in vaccine recipients, both to the placebo group and to the background rate in the population, is an important part of making sense of trial data. In trials for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, 
eight cases of Bell's palsy were reported, one of which was in the placebo group. And this turned out to be at or lower than the background rate. The background rate gives us a way of grasping that people are inevitably going to develop various conditions for a host of genetic and environmental reasons that may have nothing to do with the vaccine having been administered. This means rare and scary medical events and conditions will inevitably be present when the numbers of people involved get big enough. This doesn't mean researchers assume no causal connection. It means more analysis and perhaps further research is necessary to determine whether or not it is there. In the case of Bell's palsy, a causal relationship turned out not to be there. But in the case of the rare blood clotting disorder, a causal relationship was in fact established. So, My hope is that with friends and family who are perhaps on the fence or have been scared into hesitancy, introducing them to these concepts or introducing these concepts into your conversations might be helpful. And I think that the important thing to remember is they actually describe a kind of cognitive blind spot that we are all prone to until we are otherwise educated. Well, I'm very pleased to present this interview with Abby Richards. I'll just read her bio from her website. Abby Richards is a science communicator who uses social media to discuss disinformation, conspiracy theories, and climate change. She has created viral anti-disinformation content ranging from the conspiracy chart to her QAnon explainer TikTok series. She aims to create responsible, informative, and engaging content that helps people better understand the complex world of information in the 21st century. Abby has established her presence across several platforms and is a trusted voice for her over 250,000 followers. Her work has been featured by outlets such as the BBC, The Guardian, Euronews, Irish Times, USA Today, Insider, Now This, but never mind all of them because now she's on Conspirituality Podcast. I hope you enjoy this. I really learned a lot. Abby Richards, thanks so much for taking the time and joining us here on Conspirituality Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're really huge fans of your work. Uh, so it's just really delighting. Um, I just want to get the first thing out of the way here, which is that I think that I'm about twice your age and I'm not on TikTok. I don't really know how it works, but 700 million people are using it. So what are the main things that... Gen Xers and older folks don't get about these new social landscapes, but they really should? I don't think they understand necessarily how important the parasocial relationships are on there and how 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 attached people become to the people that they follow um, and how they look to those people for information. And I also don't think that they understand the algorithm at all. So like, TikTok is just, you open up your For You page and you're just fed content that the algorithm knows you will like. And I don't think the, the, the older generation knows what that experience even is or what it means or re- what the repercussions are. Do they, is this sort of more advanced or, or more attuned to 
user preferences than the boomers would experience on Facebook even? So much more than, than Facebook. It's everybody's for you page is very, is, is different. Um, and it figures you out very quickly. There's kind of a joke in the TikTok space that like, if you want to know somebody, you go look at their algorithm. Like if I want to know that, (laughs) if I want to like check someone before I date them, for instance, I'd be like, hand me your TikTok. Like, let me see what's on your for you page because your algorithm like is very telling of who you are. Um, there's also the joke that, yeah, (laughs) there's also the joke that, you know, people will be like, it took me like 20 years to realize that I was gay. It took my family like 30 years to realize I was gay. It took the TikTok algorithm like four minutes. <laughs> right. So you're saying you're saying if you like hand your phone to somebody that you meet in a bar, they can scroll through it and like immediately pick up what what you know what personality type typing, uh, everything that sort of relationship managers have been trying to figure out for for decades. That's just all right there. Yeah, probably. Right. Um, I can learn a lot about somebody and you have to be like literate in TikTok. But if somebody handed me their their phone and I could just scroll through their for you page, I would learn a lot about them. Now, in terms of what you produce uh, and how well it works, what are the basic kind of storytelling and tone rules of TikTok video production? I don't think that there is just one because there's clearly a lot of different formulas that work with a lot of different audiences. Um, so it really depends on like finding your own voice. And for me, like it's being well-researched, but also like, as you said, with tone, you have to um, figure out what angle makes your story compelling so it's a lot of like storytelling, I think. Um, right. Yeah. So to make something go viral, like people have to want to like keep watching it. They have to find it like interesting and people like learning. So it has to like educational content can be really, really powerful on there. Right. And I suppose that if there's educational sort of cliffhangers that one episode will lead to another or... And, and, and that the following will increase from there. Is that part of how it works? Yeah, it can. So you can develop a following if you're like, oh, I'm doing like part one, part two, part right. three. I know a lot of people followed me for my QAnon series. Um, but also if you just consistently put out good content, you will uh, right. generally acquire followers because people want to keep seeing it. Now, you started with um, golf and the privatization of green spaces, and that's a really like eco-activist zone, and I know that you're a, a climate science uh, student as well. How did you move from that into conspiracy theories, and, and is there a link for you? It felt very accidental at the time. Looking back, I think there probably were some links. <laughs> At the time, it just kind of felt like I was talking about the things that I found interesting. Um, the golf thing really like it started as a joke where I was just like, golf is dumb. And then like I made this video and everyone was like, yeah, like we should ban golf. And I just started researching it and I got kind of obsessed with it. Um, so I was like, this is just the biggest waste of space ever. I really hate it. Uh, and I think that 
largely helped me to develop a platform and make connections on TikTok. Um, and once I had a, a platform, I just kept seeing conspiracy content because I like, was seeing it in my comment sections, right? And like, or I was seeing anti-Semitic comments. Um, and I was just more literate in TikTok, which meant I understood how these ideas were spreading. So I think I was just seeing it more. And then on top of that, from the golf videos, I mean, I just kept posting environmental content and I uh, became very involved in EcoTalk, which is a um, in the collaborative environmental TikTok page. Um, and we have to deal, the, the environmental space in general has to, has to deal with so many conspiracy theories. So I just... Uh, kind of got pushed into it through there, I'd say. There seems to be a demographic overlap in the sense that, you know, I'm wondering if uh, you TikToking on golf um, is kind of like you TikToking on conspiracy theories in the sense that, you know, you're really pointing a spotlight at uh, older folks. I mean, I don't know how many, I don't know how many Gen Z folks are playing golf. And I would really, it would be really interesting to see whether or not um, the impact of your golf work actually depresses, um, you know, golf participation amongst particular <laughs> age groups. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I know that my videos have turned people away from golf. And I know that there are people who have quit golf after seeing my videos. <laughs> that's serious. That's serious stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> Have you had industry? Have you had industry pushback from that, or just sort of like sports bros who who uh, don't like it? Um, I haven't been attacked by big golf yet, <laughs> but I did have somebody make an entire hate account for me, a golfer. It was a terrible hate account. I wish he had done a better job, but um, so I mean, it was mostly like the golfers. Like, I got bombarded for a while by one professional golfer. Um, who was telling all of his like 14 year old followers to go troll me, but that's kind of the worst I got. And I guess they're golf trollers. Yeah. I mean, they're not, if they're not highly effective, um, <laughs> <laughs> right. they kept leaving koalas in my comment section. I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. So now you really, I think caught a lot of attention for your conspiracy chart and it's your own creation. It's brilliant. Um, and I think the fact that it, you know, went viral the way that it did shows how effective it is. How did you settle on the sort of categorization strategy and especially the, the thresholds? So you've got, you know, a grouping of, uh, conspiracies that are speculative and more or less harmless. And then, and then a series that, you know, indicate that the person might be leaving reality, as the threshold line says, and then there's science denialism, which starts getting, you know, quite a bit more dangerous. But then you have the anti-Semitic threshold of no return as the kind of final step towards, you know, everything that would be kind of QAnon related or networked. And I'm wondering whether, in your view, that particular step launches the conspiracist into a new realm of uh, hate speech uh, and actually into a history of, of violent fantasies and events. And if that's its most telling characteristic. When I made it, I really like, I wish I could say that there was a process or that like, I, you know, like was deliberating for a really long time about like what to call it. It's just, I just drew on paper 
for myself. I wasn't going to post it. I just made it for myself. Um, what made sense in my brain. It's literally, it was, there was very little, um, structure in how I made it. And, uh, I just, I made it and then it made sense to my friends. So I posted online and it made sense to the rest of the world. Apparently, um, the anti-Semitic point of no return, I thought was just like kind of a funny name for it. Um, because they all are anti-Semitic. Because at that point, like once you're at the point where it's like there's a group that's controlling the world, it always is anti-Semitic because it's like based out of the protocols. Um, so yes, I, I do think that like there is a certain threshold with once you've bought into this idea that like there is a group that exists that's controlling the world, um, whether you think it's the Illuminati whether you think it's a cabal, like whether you think it's Freemasons, like it always ends up, it's the exact same narrative reshaped. And I do think that like there is a certain threshold because once you've bought into that, you can really justify any other belief. And also there's a sort of a qualitative belief in who the, I don't know, the fantasized controllers are. So with with Area 51 or something like that, there might be plausibly good reasons for, you know, the government or, you know, security apparatuses to hide aliens. Uh, but when we get to, you know, the cabal or to global banking or the Illuminati, you know that they have nefarious, you know, intentions. Or that's at least what the conspiracist is trying to tell us. There's a difference between believing that the government is hiding XYZ, you know, like this program, because, you know, that's a real thing that could happen right. and that has happened. Like, like people in power do um, lie about things. They, they do um, abuse their power. Like those are very, very real concerns. But then once it's like, a made up like fictitious belief system that, that there's an evil group controlling the world and manipulating all things that happen and manipulating history in a way that is genuinely impossible to exist just like because the world's way too complex um, right. it's a very different way of thinking about the world now did you grow up in a skeptical environment I'd say I grew up in a pretty skeptical skeptical environment um I, I certainly don't have parents who are conspiracy theorists or any of that. And I didn't grow up in a super religious household. Um, so I was not uh, exposed to conspiracy theories like through my family at all. Right. But how about and how about as you were you were going through school, did you brush up against conspiracism at any point? Did you um you know, did you hear about 9-11 and the World Trade Center 7 at a certain point and, and, and go on a bit of a dive? Oh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say like, I'd say throughout my childhood, just being a kid who was discovering the internet, like very much during its infancy. Um, yeah, I saw like loose, loose change at a young age. Right. Um, combined conspiracy theories with like pseudoscience as well. And how those will blend together, especially when it comes into like health and spirituality. So I was like huge into the, what the, what, what the bleep do we know? Right. Uh, big fan of that when I was like 12. Like, 
because um, I thought that that was science. That's amazing because the first time that I came across that film, uh, it was actually promoted within the New Age cult that I was in. Of course, I was at that point, it was maybe 2002. So I would have been 31 or something. And uh, and the weird part was that was that I I found out about ten years later that the reason it had made like an early cut of that film had made its way into our cult was that um, it had actually been produced by another cult <laughs> by by the by the Rumpfa people, um, and it featured all of Rumpfa the Channeler's uh, students, you know, uh, and her right like her her chiropractor or whoever he is, Joe Dispenza and, and um, just a whole bunch of, of personalities that came out of this, of this cultic environment, in, including uh, Mark Vicente, uh, who winds up being the Lieutenant at uh, Nexium. Um, and now is the star of, of the Netflix special, the, um, the vow. So (laughs) it's very odd to, it's very odd to hear about these media making their way into popular culture and into the hands of kids really at the time in which they were actually recruitment tools for, you know, in real life, brick and mortar cults in, in the early aughts. Yeah. And when I watched it, like as a literal child, like I thought that that was science. Like I took it as a documentary about physics, right? which is insane looking back, um, but also helps me to empathize with the people right now who like watch these things and and take it as fact because they're presented as fact. I I wonder too about being 12, um, thinking that this was, and why wouldn't you think that this was just a documentary about, about the wild and crazy world of physics? Um, what did something come in and sort of like shut that pathway down at a certain point or become like, at what point did that become kind of a weird memory from childhood instead of something that you pursued and, and sort of built upon as a reality principle? I don't know if I even have like in my own brain enough of a narrative around my relationship with it um, to give a good answer to that. I think it was something I watched and liked. And then, you know, you're a kid and you just move on to the next thing. Right. Um, I was, if I, if I had been in like a more vulnerable situation where I needed answers desperately, um, right. I probably could have gotten attached to it, but I think I just had support systems and it just wasn't the, it wasn't something I needed at the time. It wasn't the right thing for me to grasp onto at the time. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it almost feels as though you were just a little bit too young at 12 that, that you know, um, somebody who was maybe spending more time out of the house or had moved out or, you know, uh, was, you know, living online or, or gaming or something like that, um, that there, there might have been less of a social context to make that seem less like entertainment and more like reality. But it sounds like, it yeah. sounds like, <laughs> you know, it sounds like um, it's something that you could come across and kind of, and kind of absorb and be entertained by like a Star Trek episode or, you know, or, or, or something else like that. Yeah. I mean, what, what, do you know what year it came out in? I don't, but let, let me just look. What? 
Because I'm not, po- I use 12 as like a random number. I'm not entirely positive exactly what age I was. <laughs> it's 2004, actually. Oh, wow. But I believe, I believe that I had, that we had access to an earlier cut of that. Um, so that's the first date that I'm getting. Uh, it might be that... 2004, I would have been eight, but I definitely didn't watch it then. <laughs> you would have been eight? Yeah, okay. So yeah. I wonder, so so do, was it like on VHS or something? Or, or, it, or no, sp- I, I swear I saw it on Netflix. Oh, okay. But that's, that's, that's when Netflix was sending out DVDs, right? No, I think it was just when Netflix had started streaming. So I might have been slightly older, but it's been... 14 maybe yeah it was <laughs> that's wild that's a, but that's i amazing. do think that whatever whatever age it was yeah it was something i absorbed i genuinely thought it was science um i thought it was really cool that they had cast a deaf actress as um you know the as the main character right. um it was, it was probably my first exposure to a deaf actor as a cult researcher like immediately I would say, oh, that was a really good recruitment tool because it was plausible, it was entertaining to you. Uh, If you had wanted to follow up on it, there would have been all kinds of pathways to do that. And, you know, you might have found your way to the Ramtha organization (laughs) uh, in Washington State. Um, So, uh, you know, I do this long-form journalism on cults and conspiritualists, and um, there's this thing called Brandolini's Law, uh, that always feels like it's hanging over my head. And it's basically, um, Brandolini was a, or is a, uh, he's like a coder guy who came up with this tweet that went viral back in 2013. And he basically just said, the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude bigger than to produce it. So I'm wondering, like you and I work in <laughs> such different forms, um, I'm wondering if you feel this too, or is uh, short form TikTok work a kind of re- like rejection of that axiom? Short form TikTok work is not in any way, shape, or form a rejection of that axiom. Okay, right. <laughs> it is exhausting. Uh, right. It is genuinely exhausting because you can just throw lies out there right. and see what sticks, and it takes no energy whatsoever but to debunk them and to do it in a way that like also I'm combating something that by its its very nature goes viral and now I have to take something that doesn't generally go viral which is like debunks um and figure out a way on top of that to make it actually have reach uh so I would say it's it's thoroughly exhausting work and I I would just want to clarify I didn't mean to to imply that there isn't like an enormous amount of research that goes into the debunking, but also the strategy. But there's something about the attention expenditure on behalf of the viewer, the consumer, that is that is quite different. Like, you know, when people go through point by point and they say, you know, this is everything that Mickey Willis got wrong in Plandemic, they wind up with like like a 4,000 word essay but like just the form of what you do, that can't be that can't be what happens. It can't be four thousand words. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's got to be. It's got to be. What are, is the average? Like two minutes? Is that the upper limit? No, the upper limit is fifty nine seconds. Oh my god! Yeah, 
I have to cut every single script. So I'll basically script something and it'll always be too long. And then I'll have to cut it and then I'll have to film it. And sometimes I'll even have to speed up my voice. <laughs> right. Oh, wait, as you're, um, as you're editing. Yeah. Uh, in my, like, yeah, post in my, in my editing, just so that I can fit everything in. Um, because they're so nuanced and, and it's really, really tough. And you have to go for a bigger idea, which is what I try and do. Like, I'm not the person who's going to debunk every single thing that's wrong in pandemic. But I do think it's very interesting to talk about, like, why we're believing that. And I think that that's also a helpful thing for people to understand. Well, how has the feedback been? In general, it's been great. People really, like, they've been, people have been incredibly supportive. Um, they They believe in my work and they like what I'm doing and... They like that I've found a new platform to use and have gotten to experiment with um, my voice and with with addressing these issues in a way that's new. Um, so the feedback's been really good. Obviously, you get the haters, but um, overall, I, I feel like everybody's been really supportive. Now, when somebody brings the hate, what's what really gets them? Like, where do they where do they get most activated? Because I'm I'm guessing that that's where you're most effective. I think it's it's usually anti semitism. Oh, I would say, um, because you'll get that one from both sides where people get very defensive, um, and they, uh, you just see it everywhere. So especially with the chart, right where I labeled it the anti semitic point of no return that got a lot of very anti-Semitic people very upset with me. And you said, but from both sides. So there are also people who don't consider themselves to be anti-Semitic who are QAnon uh, boosters and who are very offended that you're making that charge. I mean, when it comes to talking about anti-Semitism, um, you get it from the left and the right. Uh, now, I would say like, it's very different from the, both those sides. Um, right. Because on the left, it's it's much more about Israel. But like, if I just say, you know, conspiracy theories are anti-Semitic, I just for saying the word anti-Semitic, I will get comments being like "Free Palestine." And I'm like, I, <laughs> like I, I'm not Israeli. Like, I don't know what you want me to do with that. Um, I don't like. I don't live there. I I'm just talking about anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories. So, um. People are just touchy around anybody speaking about it. Right. Um, and then when it comes to conspiracy theorists, they oftentimes have no understanding. More like I'd say the vast majority have no understanding that their rabbit hole ends with the Jews. That like they don't know that and they will deny it. Um, so they don't like it. And then on then there's also just regular anti-Semitic neo-nazis and trolls who uh like they've doctored my chart they have sent me hate mail they've made a cartoon of me like they've you know done everything how how's the impact of that for you like how has it um you know are, are you comfortable talking a little bit about the you know the 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 impact on on your general well-being as you go through that stress it gets to you it's gotten to me less and less i think you get unfortunately you get kind of used to mm -hmm. it so like the first time it happened it actually 
the first time I got, um, you know, I got attacked by some wannabe Nazis was for the golf stuff. Um, which I which made no sense to me, but was the most afraid I think I ever was versus when I was like really being more attacked. I had, I had already been exposed to it and I think I had more systems in place to protect myself. Um, it's never good. It certainly never feels good at the same time. If I'm pissing off Nazis, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I think I'm doing a good right. job. Um, I would say it's not the most draining part. I, I think the most draining part is just like the never ending just spread of these lies and watching people who aren't hateful um, fall into them. For me, that's far more dra- and like emotionally draining than the actively hateful people. And when you see people that who wouldn't be naturally given over to these ideologies falling in. Do you, do you have like, has that happened in your personal circles? Have you, have you known people uh, who you wouldn't have expected to buy into particular conspiracy theories who suddenly find themselves there and, and it's very mystifying? I don't have anyone I'm super close with that is completely absorbed with these things. Obviously they've like touched my periphery. Like I have some like you know, like cousins that are or like friends of friends. And I, I hear a lot about it and I've seen how they've infiltrated people close to me as well. Like, and like, I've seen things that I believe that I realize now were not true and were conspiracy theories or like at the start of the pandemic, I got into a fight with my dad who is a very skeptical, very rational and very intelligent guy. Um, who, and he was arguing that COVID was made in a lab or like, he wasn't saying it definitely was. He just thought that it might've been. And I got into, we got into a very heated debate about it. And obviously he doesn't like believe that now, but at the start of the pandemic, when we were all very like nervous and we didn't know what was going on, that was an option that he considered. Um, So I've seen how even like somebody who I considered very skeptical and rational can fall into that. Did you have the feeling that that particular argument had to be charged because it represented kind of a a fork in the road that if that if if he began to if he began to really sort of pursue the information sources that were tending towards that argument that he would start bumping up into claims about, I don't know, PCR tests, or he would start bumping up into claims against case rates or, or you know, the WHO and its, and its, you know, evil people. I still have a hard time imagining that for him. He's like so, you know, he, he really takes his sources seriously. Right. Um, that said, like, you know, he's, he's a He's a yogi. He's a, he's a big yogi guy, um, deep into that culture. Um, so he's certainly susceptible in that way. But at the same time, like I know him and I, I don't think he would fall into it. So I never really saw it as a fork in the road necessarily. Um, but I see how it certainly could be for a lot of people. 
You know, one of my favorite parts of your QAnon explainer series is um, the cup of tea that I think you start every episode with. I do. And there's something, I mean, we, we talked in the beginning about, you know, you have to find the tone and the storyline that's going to um, grab your particular viewership and your demographic. And I'm wondering... There's something about there's something about okay we've got to have we've got to have a comfortable conversation here and it has to be down regulated and we should be relaxed about this and we should take care of ourselves as we're discussing this and so I'm wondering is that is is that do you feel that that particular affect or that tone has been has been successful or that it speaks to a need amongst uh, you know, Gen Z viewers. Yes. And it's something I did not know at the time when I made my first video. I don't think I knew what that I had done that. Mm. And once I realized that I had, I kept doing it. But um, I think people fundamentally, they want to feel safe and secure. Right. Right. And that's why they turn to conspiracy theories is because it's giving an answer that there's someone to blame. Um, they don't necessarily have to actually make changes in the world. Um, and they get like an in-group that th- makes them feel safe and secure. Um, and I think that the emotional response to that content um, which is often like anxiety producing doesn't help. And they continue to seek out more and more of these narratives that give them answers, even though it's making them more anxious. So what I do is try and counter that so that like, if they see my content, like the first thing they feel before, like I am jumping in with some, uh, you know, like some debunk that's scientific or anything. I want them to first just feel comfortable and safe. So like, I, like if I'm going to talk about something that is genuinely terrifying, like, like QAnon, right. Cause it ends in authoritarianism um, and it's filled with hatred and it's, it's just like causing so much anxiety and stress and hatred in the world. Um, it makes sense for me to, dress down, do it in my sweatpants, do it in my pajamas and drink some tea. Cause I think that we all need to relax and I want to convey that general vibe in my videos. You know, it's really striking. You're, you know, I've just learned, I thought it was a two minute limit and you're telling me it's 59 seconds, but you're spending two or three of those seconds on the tea, maybe four. And so that's like a super important choice. Like the, the narrower the window goes for, you know, what you're what you're going to choose content wise, the more important those choices get, and so it's just really impressive that that that's that that's so central actually, because the other thing that the other <laughs> thing that the other thing that really sort of strikes me about the T is that it moves at a non TikTok rhythm, right? Um, like in that it slows down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you actually open with, I think the bag is bouncing up and down and you're watching the tea steep. Uh, not in every video. I did that in like one. Yeah, and none of my, like my videos don't necessarily follow the exact same format. Right. Um, I remember doing that in like my Save the Children video, but I think I also opened it as a skit. So I, I really just do what I want for that video, right. but I try and 
focus on making people feel comfortable and also like making myself feel comfortable. I need the tea. I don't want to talk about this either. <laughs> right. Right. Well, that comes through too. So there's kind of like a, um, uh, it's a sympathetic identification. I think that like, um, well, we've got to talk about this, but let's get, let's get cozy first. Yeah. <laughs> That's literally it. <laughs> you nailed it. Now, do you, you've, have you been able to watch any of Cullen Hobach's Q-Doc on um, HBO? Uh, I am two episodes in. Now, you did an amazing take on the trailer, which was, <laughs> which was ridiculous. Uh, and it, and, was HB, and HBO did not sue you. I saw the caption in the TikTok saying, you know, HBO, please don't sue me. Uh, but, but just for the, just for the listeners, um, we'll put it into the show notes, but, um, Abby plays two characters, uh, discussing the, the, the trailer for the QAnon special at, uh, HBO headquarters. And they're talking about how they're going to turn this super violent ideology into something that looks like, you know, a video game with, with superhero music over it. Um, so anyways, super funny. Um, How's the actual documentary unfolding for you? What are what are your impressions so far? Ooh, I don't, I'm not going to like, I, I think once it's over, I'll do some sort of discussion right. about it. Because like, I don't want to like make any sweeping claims, um, especially because I've only seen the first two. Um, I thought the second one was better than the first. The first one, like they spent way too much time talking about, QAnon's predictions being right. Yes. Is like a justification. Which they um, weren't. They, right. they spend like, yeah, they weren't. And they provide a um, quick, a very quick like 10 second cut of Travis view just being like, well, you know, if you throw a bunch of stuff out there, like, right. you know, you have thousands of drops that mean that could mean anything. And then you can go tie it to whatever you want that like, you can form those narratives, but I think people believe what they hear first and people believe what they hear for the longest amount of time. So I don't think that that was the smartest coverage. Um, the second episode was a, was a bit better. Like, I mean, that was just more of like a deep dive into Jim and Ron and Fred. <laughs> um, and that's been interesting to watch. So I would have to see all of it before I can like say like, thing good or thing bad, which I mean, it'll probably be somewhere. Um, you know, I was, I just, I had this thought that it seems like your, um, your, your arch villain, uh, in terms of, in terms of internet persona in this landscape would be Ron Watkins. Um, (laughs) and that, and that somehow, and that somehow on TikTok, you're, you're, you're making moves towards creating a kind of anti eight coon. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering who, uh, you are collaborating with, like, who are you finding? Like, so there's followers, but there are other people that are doing similar work or that you're going to be working with or, or that you're finding common cause with. Oh yeah. I mean, I have so many people who I'm constantly talking to, to first learn more. Um, so I'm just kind of talking to different experts who understand things that I don't. Right. And I have them, um, I will get them to uh, check over most of my videos. So like all of my QAnon um, videos were 
reviewed by several different like QAnon experts. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I just, I don't, I'm, I live in constant fear of putting out false information. Right. Um, I just don't want to make things worse. So I was getting people to review all my scripts and, and whatnot. Um, and then, I mean, like lots of journalists who I'm talking to, um, different experts in different spaces because conspiracy theories touch so many different uh, realms of research and expertise and different like aspects of the world. So um, I learn from a lot of different people. Um, and then there's also content creators who I work with and I talk to. So like, you know, like there's one who focuses specifically on sex trafficking um, misinformation because she does legitimate volunteer work for like to, to prevent sex trafficking and to work with victims. Um, and she cannot stand <laughs> all of the misinformation, which but it's like a huge viral problem on, on TikTok. Um, everybody thinks they're about to be trafficked. Um, so, and then like, you know, political TikTokers in general that I work with or that I talk to, um, so like so many people. Uh, Can we just back up a bit? You said, you just said that so many people on TikTok believe that they're about to be trafficked. So, so if, if, if I was scrolling, uh, I might come across your debunk of Save the Children, but then I might pass on by and see somebody else's TikTok about their fears that they are being trafficked. And those fears might be unreasonable. They might be dramatized or... Oh, so TikTok has a severe problem of like, I'd say like the sex trafficking panic in general Mm -hmm. is huge on there. So a lot of viral, like a lot of viral videos of like, um, zip tying your car means you're being marked to be trafficked or having somebody write this on your car means you're, you know, you're about to be trafficked or like always look under your car because someone might be hiding there so that they can, um, cut your ankle and then grab you. Um, there's just, these are everywhere and they get millions and millions and millions of views and likes because, uh, they present as activism and they present as a warning. So then everybody will share it with their friends. Everybody will boost it in the comments because TikTokers, the TikTok users know how to make something go viral. Um, and they believe that, you know, because they have good intentions, they believe like it's important to know that like this is a mark that you're going to be trafficked, um, without necessarily understanding that first of all, it's really not. That's not at all how trafficking works. <laughs> but um, and that they're just causing this this unnecessary panic that's doing a lot of harm um, to actual. Uh, trafficking prevention. That's amazing. I mean, the the tea becomes that much more important, I guess, right? Yeah, we all got to calm down. A massive panic. I just saw one the other day of a girl who thought um, that she was almost trafficked in a Target because um, there was a there was a woman and her daughter following her around the Target, and the act. It actually just sounds like you know there was a woman and her daughter that kept being near her in a target. Uh, and it has millions and millions of views and she's convinced that it's trafficking, um, because she's been exposed to so much of that content. And I don't want to, um, delegitimize her panic, like in her fear, 
I think that like, it's scary to be a woman in the world. Um, and, but it's a far scarier if you're constantly being exposed to false information that you are about to be kidnapped. Wow. That this is, this, this is a stunning thing that I did not know. Okay. So I'll try, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to absorb <laughs> that for, for a while. It's a whole deep dive. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so um, question for you. Jen Psaki calls you from the White House and says, we would like you to do some TikToks for, um, uh, against disinformation on behalf of the Biden administration. Uh, what do you say? I think that part of my success lies in uh, my unaffiliation to any major... Um, you know, political groups or, uh, organizations. And, um, I don't like, I think people trust me because I am a person rather than a, like a, like an organization that they know, or like, um, you know, a, a label or a logo, um, they trust me and I don't want to be incorporated into, the government in that right. way. Um, and cause you know, like I'm, I'm so happy to do those debunks and I will continue to do them and like, but I, I don't want to do them under the name of somebody else. I think that then I lose a lot of my own legitimacy. Well, it's, it's almost as if you are cutting a pathway, the same pathway that mainstream journalism publications have to cut, which is, you know, to recognize that there were 75 million Trump voters uh, in the last election and that you're to wear your affiliations, your politics on your sleeve is going to immediately um, alienate a huge portion of your potential pop- your potential viewership. Um, and so it makes sense to me. It's almost like, it's almost like you, you're, you're trying to do a very neutral kind of, um, journalism. That's also, that's also comforting and funny. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I don't claim neutrality. I have very strong views, right? Like I'm the girl who wants to abolish golf. Uh, but I don't want, especially with something this touchy, I don't want anyone to think that I'm a puppet or like a shell, Um, And I know they already do, right? I already get comments that like, I'm a CIA plant and it's like, I'm definitely not. (laughs) Uh, But I think that like talking about these issues when like you really have to be careful that you're not coming across as someone who's literally being paid by the cabal to like tell lies. So it's important to me that for that reason, I I am independent. Um, And I think that organizations and platforms and like people who want to see me succeed, like I think that they should also understand that. Like, I don't think I should be scooped up into work for another organization. Like I should remain independent because that's where a lot of my credibility is. I'm thinking that that even extends to the tech, right? That you're obviously doing this editing. You're clearly using your 
is it just your phone and then iMovie or something like that? Uh, yeah, I just use my phone. I usually use Video Leap, but I will also sometimes use Adobe. It has that feeling, right? Uh, it has that feeling that you are just a person in the world. Um, and I think you're right that that if the if it got any shinier, um, first of all, it probably wouldn't look like it belonged on TikTok. Um, but on the other hand, it, it also wouldn't feel like, uh, it was, it was this DIY, you know, I, as an individual, I can actually tell the truth about something. Um, and I don't, and I don't need mm-hmm. anything special for that. I don't need, I don't need a grant. I don't need funding. I don't need a, I don't need a scholarly position or a political appointment. Um, I can just do it. Yeah. I mean, I think that like my background, like my you know, my background in science and the fact that I'm a grad student and I have literally made my, my grad work like largely about like climate change and disinformation and, um, affiliations that I have and the work I've done, like lends to my credibility. I just think as long as it's clear that I stand on my own. So like, um, I don't want to like, make my videos look super polished and film them in in a studio um, or behind a desk, right? Like I like that they come across, like I'm filming them on my phone in my own home because I am. Right. Um, and I don't, yeah. And I shot them myself and I edited them myself because that's how I capture my voice best. Um, I mean, I still like would love grants so that I can keep doing the work because I need because like, it's a lot of time and effort. Um, but that voice and like capturing that certainly matters. So can we imagine a granting body that, you know, you could, you know, transparently accept funding from that would not like denigrate or degrade your credibility? Or are you really just stuck doing this for free? <laughs> No, I definitely can accept grants. I, I mean, I have like, there's just no way that I can continue doing this for free. I'm right. currently at a loss of profit. I have like a very small Patreon, but like, um, uh, I think that I'm comfortable working with like nonprofits. I'm comfortable working with, um, you know, think tanks and different organizations, and I'm comfortable um, working with like platforms if I like and. and you know, consulting different people and organizations. Um, but I will do that transparent, transparently and on the condition that like, I still criticize, like, you know, right. like in like the way like, I, I look at like NPR, right. When they cover something, they'll admit to whether or not they're, they're funded by them, but that doesn't um, really uh, taint their coverage. So, uh, if I were to get grants, there are certainly grants I would not accept, but (laughs) I suppose if Jen Psaki calls you from the white house and says, can you consult on this thing? You could say, you could say, yeah, if, you know, if I can bring my camera and do TikToks of how the conversations go. Yeah. I'm happy to consult. If you want like consultation and I agree with the, the thing that you want consultation on, like if you are genuinely trying to combat conspiracy theories and you're doing good work, um, yes. And I understand that like, you know, like I, there are specific platforms that I will not mention that I don't like love, <laughs> but I'll still, I still have to work with them. And like, and like conspiracy theorists don't like that at all. Cause they don't understand that 
the world is complex and that a lot of people are hired by organizations that they might not even like love or like corporations that they might not even love. And that like, that's how you try and make them better. Yeah. I mean, as long as I agree with the work that I am doing, I see no, I don't have a problem. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me. I love this. I love this podcast. I'm so glad that it exists because I think that the intersection between conspiracies and spirituality is so fascinating. And uh, I'm glad that you're providing this resource for people. So a brief addendum to this interview, the work just never stops on TikTok for Abby Richards. After we filed this interview, she became aware of and then tackled a manufactured panic on the platform. The supposed announcement on TikTok of National Rape Day scheduled for April 24th. This was not a thing. So here's Abby doing the Lord's work, notably, I think, in an ecosystem that seems totally bubbled off from mainstream scrutiny. There was only minor coverage of this issue while, as Abby points out in a separate Instagram post, April 24th videos received over 200 million views and were never even labeled as false information. So here she is. So there are a lot of TikToks right now claiming that a group of men decided April 24th would be National Rape Day. But I can't find any of those videos and neither could USA Today and neither could anyone at TikTok. TikTok users created this panic alone. We awareness videoed it into existence. And it perpetuates dangerous myths about rape. The vast majority of sexual assaults are committed by somebody that the victim knows, not hypothetical strangers online. Eight out of 10, and nine out of 10 if the victim is a child. Spreading awareness of fake threats does harm. Like it's been incredibly traumatic for survivors of sexual violence who now feel extra unsafe. Also, like half these videos are men threatening to punch the imaginary internet rapists. Like, okay, do you want a sticker? I can't speak for everyone, but I personally don't feel safer with you threatening violence to protect me. I would much rather you just support legislation like funding for sex ed or affordable healthcare for survivors. This is why we don't feed the trolls. 